This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the pilot podcast of Reform This with your host, Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reform what? Can it be reformed? Should it be reformed? Will it ever be reformed? You know what I'm talking about. And you will join me week to week as we walk down this path that too few have journeyed down. Yes, the religion of Islam, the fault lines, the front lines of the issues in which many Muslim groups and politicians often exploit in order to uh, cry about their grievances, in order to get the attention of the media, and yet too few have brought solutions, too few have addressed the core issues, the cancer that needs to be addressed. And I hope on this program you and I together can journey down the pathway of solutions, the pathway of reform, of real reform, in which we can bridge to solutions that have been avoided by so many, uh, solutions that have been ignored And together, maybe, perhaps through a tough love with our fellow Americans and with those abroad, we can begin the Muslim community in a 12-step program against political Islam. Get down that, past that first step of denial that so many of us have uh, avoided. And I promise, I promise you the apologetics, the apologia will be checked at the door. No excuses. The first step of denial will be breached, and together we'll learn about terms that are bantied about from radical Islam to Islamist to jihad to sharia to political Islam to uh, the terms related to organizations such as Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood. These groups that uh, are thrown about, some of whom are obviously terrorist groups and others are are large political movements. And I think what's most important about this program and as we get to know one another is there are recent study in Pew Poll that showed that over 60-some percent of Americans have never met a Muslim. And yet the fear towards the religion of Islam since... 2001 has grown. After 9-11, it was 33% had a negative opinion about the religion of Islam. And then in 2012, studies showed that over 60% had a negative opinion. If you listen to the Islamist grievance groups, they would blame Americans, they blame bigotry and other uh, issues, whatever it takes not to blame themselves. And yet... You know, listen, my my day job is as a doctor, and I treat disease. And in this disease that we're treating, uh, I have taken upon myself, and uh, many of you know, and I'm here with you today because I've gotten to know Glenn Beck, and uh, he put me on national TV when no one else did back in 2006. We got to know each other on CNN Headline News, and then I followed him to Fox as a uh, expert commentator, and uh, now to Blaze TV and Blaze Radio. And uh, thank you, Glenn, for the opportunity to be your friend and join you over the years and now bring America and the world the first podcast in the West on reform-minded Muslims, on the ability of Muslims to confront the areas that need reform, On this program, you and I together will demand that Muslims not dodge the tough questions, that we address the areas and recognize our areas of weakness 
and recognize the areas that not only only we can address, but the areas in which if our political leadership in America would address will empower us to actually move the needle domestically towards greater security and globally towards greater religious freedom and greater stability for a planet that now is becoming more and more unstable. So in this program, Reform This, there are going to be areas in which we talk about women's rights, which we talk about the rights of minorities, not only in Muslim-majority countries, but in Muslim communities in which we have small segments of society that oppress individual rights, oppress women, oppress individuals that live for all practical purposes in the West and yet are shielded. And I would tell you shielded because of a bigotry of low expectations and that we ignore their ability to come to terms with Western society, with modernity, with freedom and liberty and the rules of our republic, but rather are contained within in a separatist movement that uh, uses Sharia courts, alternative legal systems, tribalisms, and allows them to refrain from the reforms, the deep reforms that need to happen. And, and listen, I don't expect any of you to become experts in Islam. And yes, understanding these terms and where we are today in history is going to be very important. But just remember America. If you understand American history and how America went through a revolution against what? Against theocracy. You will also understand where we're headed, I think, globally in Islam. If Islam can defeat theocracy, if Muslims, rather, that practice Islam can defeat the theocrats and marginalize the Khomeinists of Iran and defeat the Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and defeat the Islamists of Hamas, the Islamists of ISIS, in all of the cauldrons that continue to brew and rebrew these Islamists, the dictators, the monarchs that live off this opium of the masses of radical and political Islam, if that cycle can ever be broken and Muslims can reform the ideas at their core that create these cycles, these unending cycles of oppression and theocracy with autocracy, I think we'll see a change finally towards the better. I will tell you as a physician again that as I know in disease, many times when we treat the patient, they get sicker before they get better. And I think we as a country domestically and globally, you'll see countries often get sicker before they get better. The Arab Awakening is a great example and we'll talk about the changes that we've seen since 2011. Many people have said that it's all for the, for the worse. We've seen Egypt devolve into the Muslim Brotherhood, but yet the mass of humanity, the largest demonstrations in humanity came out against the Muslim Brotherhood, showing that for those who believe that Islamism, political Islam, or the movement of theocracy of the Muslim Brotherhood was in the DNA of us Muslims, then that humanity would not have risen against the Brotherhood, but it did. Over 10 million Egyptians went to the streets to reject the Brotherhood in June 2013. Four times as many that went to the streets against the dictatorship and thugocracy of Hosni Mubarak and their Egyptian military dictatorship. So the Egyptian people knew they did not want theocracy, but they also knew they did not want dictatorship. The problem is, is they've not been able to coalesce around what they want and understanding the freedoms that they want to come together around. So as we tackle these things, I think from the granular level, we'll have to address issues and begin to, from a clinical standpoint, as we address women's rights, as we address Sharia in its public place, Muslims in America, as we look at national security and, and policy, we will begin to, on the front lines, dissect 
the areas that need reform. And we'll also learn the terms, become more empowered with knowing the terms and using them appropriately. I do think, though, that I promise you in this program, together as we tackle the areas of reform, that the fault lines will be breached. We will not apologize for addressing these things directly. And I will do it as a Muslim who loves my faith. You know, a book that I wrote in 2012 called Battle for the Soul of Islam addresses these things. And in every day of our lives, all of us have battles that we struggle for. Uh, This election is sort of a battle for the soul of conservatism. And I think as we look at reformation within the faith of Islam, we cannot ignore the front lines that address these issues on a daily basis. In this program, in this first program, there, as I introduce you to who I am and what we're trying to do, I hope you also realize that um, there not only is an educational process here, but we'll look at the current topics of the day. For example, the recent uh, election of the first Muslim mayor of a large Western city of large Western government in in the United Kingdom. We saw the election of Sadiq Khan. What does that mean for the West and what does it mean for Muslims and for reform? I'll introduce you to the Muslim reform movement, which was a culmination of years of work at uh, the organization that I head at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. We joined multiple other organizations in forming the Muslim Reform Movement, and I will tell you about that diverse movement. In the next segment, I will like to talk to you about, you know, the, the most important question that I get is, you know, are you a mutation of Islam? Who and what is a moderate Muslim, a term that I am not fond of, by the way. I don't think there's moderation in what I do. I think it is about a passion for America, a passion for liberty, and as Glenn Beck has called me, a radical, if you will, uh, among those who are too silent to speak up. But I do believe that one of the most important questions we should ask is, what is it that drives the radicalization of Muslims towards ISIS? I think it is what they will die for. So, do we counter that extremism? Maybe. Or do we replace that wish of wanting to die for Islam and the Islamic State with a desire to wanting to die for nothing else but freedom. When we come back, we'll talk about what it is that drives each of us and what are the few things that we would want to die for. Reform This, reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800 800- 2150465 Reaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser and welcome back to the pilot broadcast of Reform This. We finished last segment talking about extremism talking about what it is exactly that drives these militants to not only become extremists, but become violent. And the question is asked every day, and Americans in the West are becoming more and more fearful, and that's exactly what the militants want. Terrorism is about wanting to change our way of life. It's about putting the West on defense. It's about the unpredictability and fear of attacking not only hard targets, but soft targets. We saw in San Bernardino the attack of the softest of all targets, a Christmas holiday celebration at a healthcare facility by a husband and wife who decided to kill 14 and injure many more. And then as we see before that, Chattanooga, we see Paris, 
twice in one year. And then the second time we saw a cell commit an act of terror, a number from that cell then get away and go on into hiding to hide not in a enclave in Yemen or in Libya, but they hid in Belgium, inside Europe, inside a safe harbor from the West, which was a neighborhood that was a land of Islam inside the land of war. And the radicals divide the world into Dar al-Islam or the land of Islam and Dar al-Harb or the land of war. So for the first time in Paris and then in Belgium this year, we saw that a cell had gone and hid inside an organism, and that same cell committed two acts of terror four months apart. And we realized, finally, I think, we saw regular media, mainstream media, covering the fact that this is not only about so-called lone wolves, a term which I reject and you'll find that I never use because these are not lone wolves, they are not uniquely pathological, but they're feeding from the same cancer, from the same trough of theocratic, militant Islamism. But at the end of the day, we are seeing our own governments, our own society, protect our way of living, not by anything functional, but by a random, if you will, prayer of a whack-a-mole program and that we we think that somehow by by uh, looking for not the extremists but we look for the violent extremists and we look to when they're about to commit an act to protect our homeland and that's why to do a whack-a-mole program we have had to have the largest agency in government because there are so many areas in which we have to basically look only for when these folks become militant so you look at chattanooga and the Chattanooga terrorist, days before he committed the act, was posting. One day he's posting posts about wanting to establish Islam on earth. And the next day, he's then beginning to gather weapons. And the only time in which our security apparatus could actually begin to restrain him and find him would be when he was gathering weapons. But before that, with his extremist ideology wanting to establish Islam, that's off. That is just off um, their territory. And I'm here to tell you, and I think in this program, as we look at what needs reform, as we look at the areas in which we Muslims, those Muslims who realize that this is a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution, that solution is not just countering the extremism, but rather long before that, when they begin to become Islamist, when they begin to believe that the government, that the system, that the party should all be identified as Islamic. That's what Islamism is. It's a belief that their faith is completely wedded to their political identity, their national identity, and their legal identity in government and in society. That legal identity being the Sharia state or Islamic law uh, being called Sharia. Now, listen, I have Sharia in my own life as far as the way I pray, our diet, and other things. And just like when we talk about Islam, there are personal, pietistic Islam, and then there's political Islam. And I hope as we go through this program together, you'll begin to understand the difference between political, state-established Islam versus personal, pietistic Islam. And no, Muslims have not succeeded at separating those two. And until we do so, until we begin that pathway of reform, we're going to continue to be threatened. So let's go back to the question I asked before the end of the last segment. We said, what is it that they want to die for? Or let's rephrase that before we get to wanting to die as a militant Islamist. What is it that radicalizes them? And, you know, as we ask this question, I, I, I couldn't help... But, uh, you know, if you look at the war of ideas that's being fought around the planet, the central cancer cell is not the militants of ISIS. And they are simply a symptom. The central cancer cell are the promulgators of political Islam, the Islamic State, all of these states, not just the so-called more uh, theocratic states of Iran or Saudi Arabia, which are truly, you know, 
headquarters central for political Islam. But even the so-called more moderate states that that are with us against Al-Qaeda, they also spread the same interpretations of the Quran. They also spread the same movements of Islamist movements that can only be defeated when Muslims take on their religious legitimacy. But it's interesting. Now, the debate about the use of the term Islamist has, I will tell you, almost been lost. Why? Because we have yet to put forth a ideological offensive war against political Islam for liberty, for freedom, and for the secular liberal state based in religious liberty as we know in America and our first liberty and our first freedom. Instead, we've been barraged by entities, the leading one of which is Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is a billion dollar, billions of dollars operation out of Qatar, an autocratic monarchy that has a state-owned media arm that is often falsely portrayed in the West as being this bastion of freedom that has helped uh, advance ideas of the Arab awakening. And sure, it has been responsible for some of the changes in governments and some discussion of advancement of rights for Muslims and, and perhaps others. But there's no doubt that it is no different when it comes to American security, when it comes to the defense of real, genuine liberty. It's no different than Pravda was in the Cold War. And when you look at today's evil empire, which is the OIC, and and we'll talk about this later, but the Organization of Islamic Cooperation is today's evil empire, a conglomeration of many Islamic states that come together for one reason, which is uniting against the non-Islamic world. They form a voting bloc in the UN, and the OIC is basically today's evil empire. And the head information operation of that comes out of Saudi Arabia, where the OIC is based, but also out of Qatar and their media arms. And Al Jazeera is the home base for the Muslim Brotherhood's media arm. And you'll look at, uh, for example, their number one program on Islamic law or Sharia in life is led by the world's leading and foremost Sunni scholar, Yusuf al-Qardawi. Supposedly 60 million Arabs listen and watch his weekly program on Sharia. So the influence in which Al Jazeera has in shaping the advancement of parties like the Ikhwan, also known as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, or ISIS in Syria, or other political movements that are infused by the oxygen of Islamism, that influence is based in the power of Al Jazeera. Now, thankfully, we were doing cartwheels when we heard Al Jazeera America was going to shut down because it wasn't helpful to reform. It was an obstacle. It was a, a, a um, loudspeaker for the Islamist grievance movement, the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in America. And that uh, loudspeaker was thankfully shut down in the beginning of April 2016. It failed. And uh, no thanks to uh, Vice President Al Gore, who sold it to the Qatari royalty for half a billion dollars. He gave them access to the family rooms all across America through his uh, web, I'm sorry, his uh, cable TV channel that uh, he sold. And within a few years, they failed. They weren't able to take the losses they were suffering because their viewership just did not grow. And that loss happened despite us not having an offensive operation against them. Imagine if we had today an operational U.S. information agency like we did in the Cold War that was pushing and had as a a mission to counter Soviet communism and socialism and advance capitalism and advance freedom. Sure, we have some nuggets of some of that work being done with Voice of America, with Radio Sawa, with Al Hurra. Uh, These are noble operations that are beginning to push for ideas and liberalization, but it's just a drop in the bucket. These are small budget operations that really need thousands of times more magnitude of an information operation. 
So that's Al Jazeera. When we come back, I'm going to play for you a sort of a nugget of a clinic, if you will, of a little uh, piece on radicalization and how Al Jazeera now not only and the, and the Ikhwan and the Islamists want us to stop using the term Islamism, but now even the term radicalization they don't want us to use. The world is upside down. Every day we see examples of Orwellian changes in the vocab and in the words and the lexicon of what they will tolerate and will not, and that puts us on the defense. So when we come back, we'll talk about what is a radical, what is not a radical, after we listen to the blithering idiocy that was recently posted out of Al Jazeera. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. A store in Owensboro, Kentucky, decided that, uh, you know what? We're not going to take sweaty money anymore. And they put a sign on the door. Due to rising temperatures, we will not be accepting boob or sock money. This is going to be the beginning of we don't need cash anymore. Man, you want to talk about putting some people out of business, out of tip money. I mean, people aren't putting prepaid debit cards into the underwear straps and out the boob straps of the dancers. The Jeff Fisher Show. Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. We left off talking about the lexicon and how for years now we've been trying to even get them to name radical Islam, Islamism. And that's been difficult because of political correctness in the sense that it's somehow going to offend Muslims, when in fact, by not naming it, you are actually rendering reformists impotent. You're rendering those who would ask the questions of separating Islamism from Islam irrelevant because you can't even talk about it within the House of Islam or having to do anything about the House of Islam. It's just that violent extremism, whatever that is. So ultimately, no, now they've had such success with countering the discussion about even including the term Islam or Islamism or Islamist. Now they're actually trying to stop the use of the word radical. And some would say, are these militants radical? Sure. How do you define radical? Most of the time when we talk about radical in the public space, we're talking about militants that would use violence to achieve their ends. Yet radical could mean and actually should mean those who harbor an ideology that is incompatible with our way of life, be it communism, be it fascism a type of system in which individual rights are no longer respected are those ideas harbored by radicals. And so now they, they've been able to shift the conversation away from even the term Islamism to now wanting to stop to use the term radical. So now we are going to end up just calling these militants criminals. And once you do that, reform becomes impossible. You cannot empower reformists to, uh, to identify with and lift up women's rights, the rights of minorities, the rights against the theocrats, the men in robes and beards who decide what is and what is not Islam for the rest of the Muslim population. But unfortunately, by them controlling, and who is them? the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, all of these dictatorships that tell the West what we can and should not say and what offends us. And it even motivates our own politicians, such as Secretary Clinton, to say that Benghazi was because of a video. And I'll let the politicians straighten out that corruption. But at the end of the day, Look at how powerful the organization of Islamic cooperation is at driving the narrative when, in fact, our own leaders are using that as an excuse for terrorism. And at the end of the day, it's not just about Islamism. They also want to have us stop using the term radical. And I want to play for you a, a video that uh, 
uh, a audio from a video that has now been hit millions of times. It's the voice of uh, some westernized or American Muslim woman who is giving us a lecture about using the term radical. So as you listen to this, this is where the narrative is going for those who want to suppress free speech. According to Wikipedia, where we get all our 101 information anyway, let's be real. Radicalization is the process by which an individual comes to have extreme political, social, or religious beliefs that are anti-status quo. But when we talk about radicalization, we don't mean these guys. We mean Muslims. No one asked, where was you radicalized when a white dude goes on a shooting spree in a school or theater? White men have been responsible for 64% of mass shootings in this country since 1982. And they get the privilege of being lone wolf shooters or mentally ill shooters or alienated and adrift shooters. There's not much talk about how even the U.S. government has said that the real domestic threat to national security are right-wing anti-government groups. And the president isn't telling white people that there hasn't been enough pushback against extremism in their communities. So we look and listen and we're told that this is uh, a conspiracy to drive the term radicalization, to drive the... Uh, marginalization of Muslims so that uh, it is an idea that then becomes lumped in with every other act, be it Columbine, be it uh, any act committed by folks who are truly mentally deranged versus folks like Islamists that are part of a global movement. And this is where I think our work has to be shouted from the rooftops is you see these words from Al Jazeera operatives, they not only want to suppress looking within the House of Islam, but they want to put us on defense. They want to do this moral equivalency that somehow it is no different for uh, any other act that's committed. They give you false statistics that are done in vacuums, as you heard her uh, screeching talk about. But at the end of the day, the hundreds and hundreds of radical Muslims that have been either committed acts of terror or arrested and convicted for acts of terror in America and the thousands in Europe that have been arrested and convicted as accomplices or participants in the global movement for not only ISIS, but the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, or other Islamist groups that are all over the planet. So these movements are connected. And this is the reason we have to get back the narrative. And Muslims can help you. Muslims can help us begin to do that. But it has to be Muslims that are honest. And so let's talk about what radicalizes them. You know, uh, the question is what they would die for. And as I mentioned earlier, these individuals want to die for the Islamic State. They want to die for a sense of redemption the radicalization process doesn't always begin with an imam. It begins with grievances. The San Bernardino shooters, it was not a coincidence. Within 30 minutes, the families of these shooters were doing press conferences and talking to the Council on American-Islamic Relations. This is not to say that CARE had a direct connection to the San Bernardino shooters, but they did have a direct connection to the family. And the question is, is how is it that a family reaches out to the most notorious national grievance group for Muslims as their representative? And how is it that they had access and knew them comfortably enough to hold a press conference even before those families spoke to the FBI or as they were speaking to the FBI and getting debriefed? It's because these grievance groups that want to control the narrative, that want to control the vocabulary of what we can and cannot say in public. These grievance groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which is basically a laundering operation for the blasphemy laws coming out of Qatar, coming out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, you know, I've always said these groups should register as Foreign Agency Registration Act um, beneficiaries. They they commit a lot of what they do at the expense of American security in the name of American freedom, in the name of civil rights, 
but yet are endorsing ideologies that are anathema to America, anathema to freedom, and actually are obstacles to the reforms necessary. So when you look at, you know, as we listen to that clip, it seriously sounds like a Islamist drunk on the the concept that uh, ideas and, and words like radicalization can be used and should be used. And, you know, as, as Glenn has mentioned, you know, who's the radical? I guess if you look at the paucity of spokespeople that are speaking for reform, uh, I come across as a radical when the moderates, the apologists, those who want to separate the connection between ideology of Islamism and the militant Islamists, maybe the ones that currently are normative Islam. And I think it's up to Muslims and it's up to all of you to push the Muslim community to make that separation and begin to atone for what we've been asleep for. And I think we need a 12-step process. Yes, it is radicalization. And no, we're not going to stop using the term radicalization. And we're not going to stop using the term Islamism. These are Islamists. And we need to begin, as you understand, the step from grievance groups to conspiracy theories to anti-Semitism to then a sense of collective jihad against the West. Jihad meaning ideological advancement of the Islamic State, then towards the bonding with some spiritual sanctioner of an imam that tells them that, yes, they need to become soldiers. And that last militancy then leads them to an act of violence. Those stages of radicalization, which were described, by the way, in the NYPD report on homegrown radicalization at length in 2007. Oh, sorry to tell you that report... uh, based on an agreement in court before it ever went to trial, but an agreement and settlement from Mayor de Blasio, who surrendered all of the work from the previous Commissioner Ray Kelly, Mayor Giuliani, and others who led the way in creating a strategy to begin to identify the process of radicalization. Now, that report has been removed. Yes, it can be found online on off-sites, but the NYPD has officially removed it. And it it just breaks my heart, not only as as a Muslim, but as an American, that the country that I, my family came to, escaping persecution and looking for freedom, that this country now can't even maintain a factual 40-page report on radicalization and the steps involved. But no, we have to get lectures from Al Jazeera and and, uh, uh, video clips with the, the nauseating, drunken, attempt to try to control the narrative of what is and what is not radicalization. So at the end of the day, these radicals want to die for their Islamist dreams. These radicals are stealing our youth for their mission to join the jihad. And the only way to defeat that is not to counter the jihad from within, but rather from within the House of Islam to advance liberty, to give our youth. When I joined the Navy, I knew that there was only one thing in this world I would die for, and that's the United States of America and promoting liberty. I would never want to die for any Islamism, for any Islamic movement, which is a personal part of my life, which is Islam. This is what we have to operationalize. And in this program, we are beginning to do that and reform this. Reform this on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. They're just going to move me out soon. Uh, we got a little tree house out in the, the woods that the previous owners built. Yeah. I guess I'll just head out there. You do the show from there. Isn't it even like a little two-level tree house? Yeah, it's, it's fairly nice. It's, I mean, yeah, it's not it's winterized cool. at all. But I, you think I'm joking. I have waxed nostalgic about the possibility of going back to a simpler time. That and being there. your domain. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser back with you in our last segment of Reform This. 
our pilot broadcast. And my goal in this podcast will be every week to empower you, to empower you with education, to empower you with a sense of understanding what we're up against, but also to give you some hope. Too much of this conversation has been missing hope. It is fraught with enraging people to exaggerating our fears and yet often avoiding our fears and, and pretending they don't exist when in fact we need to do both. Recognize that there's a real enemy out there. Recognize that there's an ideology that wants to not only destroy the West but advance itself globally in a theocratic Islam that needs to come to terms with modernity. But ultimately we have been not only appeasing the enemy, but surrendering with no offense and only defense. So my goal is to empower you, to empower you with facts, to uh, give you the unvarnished truth of what we're up against without any apologetics and to get past that first step of denial. But we need to be truthful. We need to be accurate. Uh, we can't just be politically uh, correct, but not being politically correct doesn't mean saying things that are wrong, that are without fact and without historical accuracy. So I hope we can do that. You know, there have been a lot of milestones, one of which was we were reminded of this week by uh, Daniel Pipes, who wrote a piece about the Sykes-Pico ag agreement being 100 years old. And that agreement was one that basically carved up the Middle East into the nation states that we know of today in the era of the early 20th century. And what's fascinating about this 100 years is that there are many concerned, and as Glenn, had, Glenn Beck had talked about early on, was, is that whole map going to change? And I can tell you as a Muslim, as somebody who grew up in Wisconsin and loves America and feels that I can practice my faith in America like nowhere else in the world, that the only future that I believe will exist peacefully and with even a glimmer of hope of the possibility of the defeat of radical Islam and military dictatorships is the preservation of the nation states in the Middle East. And those nation states need to be ones not unified with Ba'athism, which was a social fascist party in Syria, or the NDP party of Egypt, which is another socialist, fascist, Arabist, uh, racist party, if you will, or the royal families and the tribalisms of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states but rather a nation-state unified around the ideas of secularism and liberty, of religious freedom. And this is what, you know, you don't all have to become experts in Islam to figure out possibly what could be the hope of the Middle East. And this was the evolution of America. Our four founding fathers, our founding fathers fought against theocracy and ultimately brought Christianity to the point at which it did render under Caesar, what is Caesar and unto God's, what is God's. And I think ultimately, this is the evolution now. It's surely, as we've seen, going to be bloody. It's surely going to be a cataclysmic battle within the house of Islam. But, uh, you know, I think as we walk through this journey together, you'll realize that if the West sits this out, not militarily, because we can't kill all the jihadists, but if you sit this out intellectually and in the battle place of ideas, that vacuum will be filled by more militant, more powerful, more armed and monetarily supported Islamists from Iran and the Khomeinists of the Shia to the Wahhabists of the Sunni in Saudi Arabia to the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt and on and on. And the vacuums of those who started seeking freedom like they did in Syria will be filled by the Islamists of the world and the petro-Islamists of the Gulf states when we sit these out. So I think ultimately, you know, I read a great piece by Bob Satloff in the Washington Post last week, which talked about what does never again mean. And he very courageously wrote that in Syria, there have been two genocides happening. One started by the Assad regime and now has killed almost half a million human beings, 95% plus, which are Sunni 
attacked and killed and slaughtered by the Assad regime simply because they are Sunni and because they were part of a revolution. A revolution that did not just start as a Sunni revolution, but started as a revolution of all Syrians in the urban areas, I'm sorry, in the rural areas that wanted to be free. And then it spread into the urban and the metropolitan areas of Aleppo and Syria and Damascus. And now we see that genocide continue with Aleppo these past few weeks surrounded and beginning to be wiped out with carpet bombing and tanks by Russian, Iranian, and Syrian government weaponry and helicopters and planes. That's one genocide. The other genocide that Congress appropriately called a genocide was that being committed by ISIS against the Yazidis, against the Christians, by identifying those in the in those faith communities and identifying them for slaughter and that clearly they had as a mission to wipe out those faith communities out of their areas in Syria and Iraq and there's no doubt that ISIS left to their own devices would do everything possible to eradicate every other faith including moderate Muslims who disagree with their theocratic fascism their Islamism from the planet. So in Syria, there's been a genocidal sandwich between the Assad secularist, supposedly, but rather Khomeinist genocidal slaughtering of Sunnis to the ISIS genocide against those in Syria. And both have, I think, should be causing us to pause in that what is the role of America? Samantha Power, our ambassador to the UN, wrote literally wrote the book on genocide and yet has now seen in the eighth year of the Obama administration, an administration that has sat on both hands as it has done nothing to speak out or act out against those who cross their red lines and use chemical weapons and the Middle East continues to devolve. It's no longer a civil war in Syria. It's a regional war. And again, this is not to say that we need to send our sons and daughters into war. But rather, what is the solution? What does victory look like? And I think ultimately victory looks like the advancement of civil society, the beginning of a new generation of those who, since 2011, have gone to the streets to show that they reject oppression and they reject dictatorship but have been left alone by the West without a strategy. A West that has sort of left them to fend for themselves from Tunisia to, to Egypt to Syria to Iraq. You know, for those who say that Iraq would be, uh, um, has demonstrated that we should stay out of there, I would ask you, just think for one second, what would Iraq look like today? If Saddam had been empowered during the Arab awakening of 2011, it would look like Syria on steroids because it's the same militant fascist regime. He would have used chemical weapons. He would have used anything possible. And the the contained chaos that we see today in Iraq is nothing compared to what would have been under a Saddam regime during this Arab awakening. So we have to put things in context of where we are. This is not to say that President Bush knew that an Arab awakening was coming, but this is to say that one cannot say that what we invested and put into Iraq was all for naught. I do think that the newspapers and the media that we see flourishing in Iraq, despite its chaos, is orders of magnitude forward from what we see in many of the other nations post-Arab awakening. I do think, as we go on this together, victory will look like what we've begun to put in our declaration of the Muslim Reform Movement, a two-page simple declaration that I would ask you to look at and find at muslimreformmovement.org. So for those who say, how do you vet refugees? For those who say, how do you vet movements inside these countries? For those who say, how do we figure out which mosques in America are on our side versus those who are against us? We sent out, and this is 14 different organizations that signed the Muslim Reform Movement Declaration, organizations based in Canada, Europe, and the United States that got together and participated in a summit that we 
convened, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, an organization that I chair. Our website is aifdemocracy.org. We convened a summit, an anti-Islamist summit in Washington. It happened to be a day after San Bernardino. And I'd ask you to go to our website, look at at muslimreformmovement.org, look at our press conference and the, the courageous leaders. I'm just one of them of uh, 14 different leaders that made very bold and clear statements against Islamism and about what victory should look like. And our Muslim reform movement not only stuck our necks out, but began, we believe, a movement that will begin to catch on. We've sent our two-page declaration, which isn't only what we stand against, but it also says what we stand for. And we think that can be used as a template. We've sent it to every mosque in America. We're waiting for responses from most of them. We've sent it to every uh, celebrity Muslim that you see on television, on other podcasts, on those who are not being held accountable. And we ask them, where do you stand on these issues? And the questions are simple. Our two-page declaration says, we stand for human rights and peace. We support the equal rights and dignity of all people, including minorities. We reject violent jihad. We reject caliphism and the caliphate. We reject dictatorships, theocracies, and Islamist extremists. And we rather stand with those who seek freedom. We reject tribalism and monarchies and patriarchies and consider all people equal with no birthrights other than human rights. We support the equal rights of women, including the equal rights to inheritance, witness, work, mobility, personal law, education, and employment. We stand for secular governance, democracy, and liberty, and we're against all political movements in the name of our religion. We separate mosque and state. We stand against blasphemy and apostasy laws. And the declaration goes on. It's short. It's only two pages. And yet... That document can stand, we believe, as a litmus test for those. If you Now listen, to get to the point of believing in those principles as Muslims, I get it. We have a long way to go to reform to get to those ideas. But to get to them, once we say this is where we're going, then the West can believe us, can know that we're on the, on the side of, uh, of Denmark, of Britain, of Finland, of France, of Canada, of the United States of America, that these countries that are based in freedom and democracy, we stand with you because we share your principles. We don't abide by the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights, but rather by the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So look at that document. I'll be referring to it on any of the issues that I bring to you from week to week as I join you in this journey against political Islam, against radical Islam, and for the protection of our nation, our great nation, the United States of America. So thank you for joining me and reform this, and I'll see you next week. You're listening to Reform This, the Blaze Radio Network.